Are you listening to me? Did you ever hear that? I remember as a young husband hearing that. I remember as a young husband realizing that it's not a good idea to be watching the football game and listening to my wife, but not paying attention to what's being said. And then I learned, I've learned so slowly as a husband, though. You know, there are times when my wife is in the kitchen and she'll be speaking, and I've now learned to pay attention. And it doesn't sound like she's talking to me, but I'm the only one in the house. And so I'll say, are you talking to me? And it's like, no, I'm talking to myself. So I zone out, only to hear a little while later, are you going to answer me? And I thought about that as I thought about Job. Because in Job chapter 32, Job is going to be challenged by Elihu, his new friend who's come into the picture. Are you listening to God? And I ask you that same question this morning. Are you listening to God? Because the lessons that this young man is going to teach to Job today are some lessons that we need to take to heart. Because God does speak to his people. And God does speak to us in different ways. And we need to make sure that we are in tune to hearing. Now, looking at Job chapter 32, we need to back up just a few verses. Job chapter 31, verse 40 says, The words of Job are ended. 32, verse 1. So the three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, for those of you that I challenge to read the book of Job, and who tried to get through chapters 3 through 31, don't raise your hand, but I want you to be honest, wasn't there a little bit of excitement and thrill when it says, the words of Job are ended? Because he's been going on and on, justifying himself. But it's there for a reason. Because most of us can find ourselves somewhere in the speeches of Job, justifying ourselves when we're struggling with the way God's working in our lives. Not only that, but the the words of his three friends ceased. If the words of Job ending made me feel good, I think that made me feel so much better. Because they've said the same things over and over and over again. They've said them without listening to what Job had to say. They brought answers to questions that Job wasn't asking and no answers for the questions that he was. And so as we reach chapter 32, Job has concluded his self-defense. His friends are giving up on the fact that what more can we say? And I agree with them. What more could they say? They've been talking forever, and they've not hit the nail on the head yet. And yet we get to chapter 32, verses 2 and 3, and then it says, Then Elihu, the son of Eberkel, the Buzzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. Looking further down in that passage, we see not only was he angry, but it says here he was angry He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. And so we get to this man, Elihu. Who is Elihu? After 30-some chapters, we know who Job is. Most of us, if we've been paying close attention, we know who Eliphaz is. We know who Bildad is. We know who Zophar is. But suddenly in chapter 32, there's this new character that's introduced. Also, if you look in your Bible, some of you may have the same structure as I do. Is there anything strange about the beginning of chapter 32 as compared to what we have been reading for the last 20-some chapters? Up until chapter 32, what we have is Hebrew poetry. And we've talked about that. And Ben did a great study on Hebrew poetry when he was going through the Psalms. But it's all been poetry. And yet, suddenly in chapter 32, for about six verses, we are interrupted with narration that we haven't seen since the first two chapters. 
Here the narrator is jumping in. And he's jumping in to introduce Elihu. Why is he doing that? What's the importance of it? Is there a reason he's doing all that? Because up until now, nobody knows that who Elihu is. I mean, he's been silent. He's not been in the story up until now. And he's been a silent listener, however. As we read through Elihu's challenge to Job, we're going to find he was paying attention. He paid attention to Job. Of the three friends in Elihu that were there, he was the only one who paid attention to what Job was really saying. Not only that, but he's logged what Job said. Did Job's friends ever really hear what Job said? They heard that they, he wasn't confessing what they wanted him to confess, but they never really heard what Job was saying. As Elihu begins to go through the next couple chapters, he is going to take Job's arguments, and he is going to introduce him to what God thinks of his arguments, and he's going to give him some kind of a, an appeal to change where he is and what he's doing and the way he's thinking. But it's not going to be the same as his friends, the three friends that have been there. And so the object of this whole narration is not only to introduce us to Elihu, but also to kind of give us an opinion of who he is and to influence our opinion. Because when you look at Elihu and the way the narrator brings it in, something jumps out very quickly. What jumps out in those first six verses? says, Elihu burned with anger. Not only that, he was angry at Job. He was angry at Job's three friends. The only person we know that he wasn't angry at was God and himself. And so if you're not careful, you look at it and say, well, this is just an angry young man, an arrogant young man. And if you start reading through a lot of the commentaries, there are some good commentators who will say, Elihu is really an arrogant, full of air young man who's just kind of interjecting his opinion here. And what the narrator is trying to start us to think about as we go through here is that Elihu is a lot more than that, and probably that's not a real good characterization of who he is. And and you look at this first opinion, and you say, but who is this young guy? And what's the reason he's speaking? And the next question is, why does he speak? And so Elihu goes in and begins talking about why he speaks. But before he does, we need to realize that his focus is going to be unique. And again, part of this, some of you I know have been ready to be out of Job since we started Job. Okay? But Job is a rich book. And and don't lose Job now because as Elihu begins to speak, he's going to take a lot of what we've taken in over the last 12, 13 messages, and he's going to correct some of the theology. He's going to transition us between an exciting time of Job being in despair, ready to die, wanting to die, begging God to take his life to Job's encounter with God. And he branches the two of those by just changing the focus on everything that's there. His focus is unique from Job's friends. You see, Job's friends focused on what? They looked at Job's circumstances and they said, you must have sinned. Only sinners suffer like this. You must have sinned. Elihu just has a different take on it, a different focus. In fact, what Elihu does is instead of looking at the cause of things and the cause of his suffering, he looks at Job's words in response since he's been suffering. Because if you look at the end of chapter 2, what is God's testimony of Job still? Job did not sin with his words through chapter 2. The problem is some of us never read the rest of the book. And we think, if if we had a quiz, did Job sin with his words? We would say, no. And we would be wrong. And Elihu's going to tell us why. Because from the time that we get at the end of chapter 2, 
Until now when Elihu steps in, Job has a major sin issue he needs to deal with. And God's going to hit him with it between the eyes. Elihu's going to lead him to it as he's going through this. And instead of focusing on why are you suffering, he's going to focus on Job. What you did was sin by your reaction to God when you were suffering. Because that's a dangerous place to be. And most of us either are in suffering, we're going to be in suffering, or we're coming out of suffering. And our take on God, and our understanding of what God should and should not do, will lead our hearts into the wrong place if we're not careful. And it's exactly what happened to Job. If you look back at Job chapter 2 at the end of the book, there's a dangerous time in Job's life. And we don't really find out about it until we get into this last part of the book. But after everything happened to Job, after Job vindicated God with two beautiful statements about the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and should we receive good things and not evil things from the hand of the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord. After that, what happened to Job? Job spent seven days in silence. I see that, and it's a warning to us, because what happened to Job during those seven days? When Job opens his mouth in chapter 3, his attitude has drastically changed from the end of chapter 2. Job has had seven days of self-pity. And Job went through a lot. Don't get me wrong. Job is suffering. He lost his children. He lost his wealth. He lost his prestige. He lost his power. Job lost everything. But what did he do for seven days? Evidently, he sat and stewed for seven days, isolated himself. His friends sat there silently with him, and he worked himself up into such a state of self-pity that he questioned who God was and how God worked. And I warn us with that because it concerns me. It concerns me when I look at God's people often at church because when we begin going through suffering and difficult times, you know the first thing most people do? They pull away from the church. They pull away from God's people because you don't want anybody else to know you're struggling. We're Christ-like. We're godly. We never struggle, do we? How many of you never struggle? Be careful, you're getting into Job's territory if you start reading and say, I haven't sinned. Because we do struggle. And when we struggle, we ought to lean into the church, lean into God's people. But Job leaned out and he got himself into a lot of trouble because of his focus and where he went and his reaction. And Elihu is going to attempt to turn Job's focus not on the fact that I was blameless. God already said he was. Job doesn't know that, but God already looked and said, Job is blameless. He loves me. He fears me. He runs from evil. But he takes to turn his focus from not who you were, but Job, what you need to look at is who you are today. And who you are today is a bitter, angry man accusing God. Not overtly, but everything you say implies that God is not righteous, and you are, and you want an answer. And so Elihu is going to begin going through all of these things and begin working with Job. And Job and his friends, again, remember, they are at loggerheads at the end of chapter 31. Job's friends are exhausted. They have nothing else to say because Job is self-righteous and doesn't want to hear that. Job has nothing else to say because his friends, they're kind of thick-headed and they haven't heard a thing he said and they've got nothing to offer him. And he realizes that. So you could get to the end of chapter 31 and it could be the end of the story. Wouldn't that be sad if the story ended there? Job's laying on an ash heap waiting to die. Job's friends are headed back home disgusted over the fact that Job's just too thick-headed to find his sin, confess it, and get right with God. And the rest of the world looks and said, what happened? 
But it doesn't end there. God sends this young man, Elihu. And Elihu, as he works with Job, he's going to talk about the fact that actually a truth that his friends missed. You see, his friends looked and they said, suffering is always the result of sin. Job looked and said, look at my life. I cannot find any sin that would cause this kind of suffering. That can't possibly be the issue unless God is not just. Elihu breaks into the picture and he's going to say suffering is not necessarily linked to God's justice at all. We want life to be fair. And so when we look at life and we look at Job, does it look like life is fair for Job? Did God ever say life would be fair in your eyes? How many of you feel like life was fair in your eyes when you look back at everything that's happened in your life? And what Elihu is trying to teach Job as he goes through this, even as a young man, and he's teaching him this through the work of the Spirit in Elihu's life, and we're going to see that as he talks about what he's talking about here. He's going to try and teach Job the fact that man's justice in response to suffering is not the way God always works. Does God use suffering for more than just punishment? Yes, you can shake your head. That's not a trick question. He does. We look at the New Testament and we find... First and Second Corinthians, God uses suffering so that after we've suffered, we can minister to somebody else who's going through that suffering. How many of you want that kind of ministry? God, send me through suffering so I can minister to those who suffer. But Paul said that's exactly what God does at times. God sends suffering in our life as we look through the New Testament, and we're not going to spend time looking these verses up. They're going to be great verses for sermons to come. But he uses it to bring us from where we are to where we need to be in Jesus Christ. He uses it to challenge our thinking, to get our attention. God uses suffering for all kinds of things. And sometimes he just uses suffering to test our faith. Does God know how real your faith is? Does God know how deep your faith is? The question isn't, does God know? It's to you. And he brings suffering in our life to teach us where we are in our walk with Jesus Christ. And so... Elihu, without having all that background, without having all those verses, begins bringing this principle into this whole situation. And the fact of whether or not the suffering was deserved isn't the point. That was the point for Job, was it not? Why is Job in such problem? I don't deserve this. When you're suffering and you've had enough and you're praying and you say, God, I don't feel like you're hearing my prayer because I don't want to suffer anymore. Why do we get there? Because we've had enough and we feel like what? I don't deserve this. You know, I come to church, I give, I'm nice to people while I'm there. You know, I don't deserve the problems that are happening in my life. And God looks and says, sometimes it's not what you deserve, it's what you need. Because what did I promise you? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Because he's predestined that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's what he's doing. God is going to make you like Jesus Christ. He said, he who began a good work in you, Philippians 1, 6, will perform it. He will make you like Jesus Christ, step by step. And some of those steps are painful. And some of those steps we're liable to look and say, God, I don't want to be here. But at the end of the day, I want to be like Christ. Whatever it takes for my will to break, Lord, that's what I should be willing to do. What a wonderful, we should have sang that this morning. You know, and that's where we need to be. And so here we are, and people, they want to inexplicably link benefits with what God does and how we act. If I put money in the offering today, what do I expect God to do for me this week? God's going to bless me. What does that mean to you? To most of us, if we're honest, God, you're going to give that back and more, right? 
You know, if I put 20 in, I should get at least 30 back out, you know, pressed together, shaken, running over. It, it, that's not how God always works. But he does want us to be faithful. He does want us to be obedient. But we want to link those two together, and we have to be careful. This morning, I guarantee you, even though it is Labor Day weekend, there are thousands of people that are going to sit in a church, and not to just pick on one guy, but it's just too easy to grab this as an illustration. They're going to sit under the ministry of someone who's going to tell them, you can be whatever you want to be. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be powerful. God wants you to have a promotion at work. God wants you to be healthy all the time. You should never be sick. And Joel Osteen is going to tell thousands of people that today. And you know what? They're going to leave there feeling really good about God wants all those things and wonder when they get home, why am I the one who's sick? Does God not love me? That kind of theology is dangerous. It's dangerous because it leaves us in despair because we're like, why has this happened to me when we don't realize that God doesn't have that kind of a scale set up? You do something nice. I've got to balance it for you again. God owes me now because I came to church. God owes me because I spent time in the Word. God, God doesn't owe us that. We're going to talk a little bit before we go to the Lord's table about what God does owe us. And we ought to be very thankful God doesn't give us what He really owes us. But here we are with Job struggling with these things. We're going to find, as we get into this, and we are about to get into it, as we get into this speech by Elihu, there are a lot of similarities between what he's going to say in the next couple chapters and what God's going to say when God speaks to Job. We're going to reach that point. And some of you have been saying, I wish we'd gotten there weeks ago. I understand. But we're going to reach that point. And when God speaks to Job, for me it's exciting, but I wouldn't have wanted to be Job. Job, for chapter after chapter after chapter, has been saying, God, you need to talk to me because I'm right. I need to be vindicated. I need to hear, I'm not guilty. So everybody around me that's been accusing me hears, I'm not guilty. But when God speaks to Job, he's going to look at Job just like Elihu looks to Job and says, you're guilty. Not of what they said, but you're guilty. And what are you going to do about it? And praise the Lord, we're going to find out Job reacts the way Job ought to react. And I think God is using Elihu to be getting, preparing his hearts for this. Elihu is addressed to Job. He addresses Job's words rather than his alleged actions like his friends. So does God. And Job's going to get the message when he gets it from God. Elihu criticizes Job's defense of his own righteousness at the expense of God's righteousness. And at the end of the book, so does God. We can never look at God and say, God, I deserve better. Because then we're looking at a righteous, holy God who's in control and saying... You messed up. When was the last time God messed up? If God messed up, God's not God. So if there's a mess, whose mess is it? And that's what Elihu is beginning to steer Job toward as he begins this conversation with him. He alone understands the implications of Job's insistence, insistence that God is wrong and I am right. If God is wrong and you are right, then we can throw the rest of this book out. But God's never wrong. God is always right. And if I look at way God, the way God is working, if I look at what God has said, if I look at the lessons that God is trying to teach me and I say, God, you're wrong, I need to look at my own heart and say, if God's wrong, God's not God, and what am I doing here? I'm wrong somewhere. And that's, Job has even asked his friends, show me where I'm wrong. Now Elihu's about to do that. You ever have somebody who was sure they were right? They, sh- they were sure that they, they could not be refuted. And they look at you and they say, show me where I'm wrong. Did they really want you to do that? Did Job really want his friends to show him where he was wrong? 
Job wanted his friends to recognize they were wrong. So he said, I'm innocent. Show me where I'm wrong. And they didn't know how to do that. So they babbled on for chapter after chapter after chapter on how God judges sin through suffering, which he can. But it wasn't Job's issue. And so here we are with Job trying to figure out all these things. And as we do this, we're going to get three speeches with the same structure. Elihu is going to give the allegation. Job's account in his own words. He's going to let Job know, I heard you. Secondly, he's going to give a rebuttal, but this is what God is doing, or this is how God works. And thirdly, he's going to give an appeal to Job. I I love what's happening there because, you know what, that's about the same thing that happens from the pulpit every Sunday. Every Sunday we need to challenge our thinking with the truth and say, am I thinking right? And then secondly, if I'm not thinking or living right, then what do I need to do? There's an appeal to get it right. If we're not becoming more and more like Christ because of the time we spend together here, we're missing the boat on things. We're here to worship, yes. We're here to gather together as a body, yes. We're here to encourage one another, yes. But all of those things ought to be doing what? Leading us to be more like Jesus Christ. And so that's exactly how Halahu is going to handle this thing. Now let's look at chapter 32 very briefly, verses 6 through 22. Just a couple of things in this chapter. There's a lot we could look at, but I want to just mine a few things out of here. Number one, in Elihu's first challenge, he addresses Job directly. He addresses Job directly. And he's going to tell him before that, in verse 32, why he's entitled to speak. Look back at verse 32, chapter 6, or verse 6, chapter 32 and verse 6. Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged, therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. That's a nice way of saying what he said. Okay, Elihu's a young man. And who are these other three friends? They're old men. They're old. They're old and have had many days and years. And he's looking and saying, because of that, I mean, what does Solomon tell us about gray hairs in the book of Proverbs? There ought to be wisdom. And so Elihu is standing back and saying, okay, you guys are the ones who've been walking with the Lord for so long. You are the ones who've seen so many things happen in your life. I'm kind of young and I can kind of learn the lessons, but I haven't had them happen in my life like that. So I stood back and didn't say anything because I didn't feel like it was my place. But then we see in verse 8, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me, let me also declare my opinion. What he's saying in just a few sentences there, it's not just life's experiences that makes you wise. It's the spirit of a man inside who interfaces with the spirit of God and the truth that makes him wise. And we're going to see as we look through this in later chapters that Elihu has had the Holy Spirit of God work in his life even through these conversations. And bring the truth to his mind and in such a way that he says, you know, I'm entitled to speak. Not only that, but look verses 11 through 14 of chapter 32. Elihu says, I need to speak. Look at chapter 32, verse 11. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. He sounds just like whom there? It's just like Job. Job kept saying, you haven't answered my question. And Elihu's looking at Job and looking at the friends and said, he's right, you haven't. I've been waiting for some wisdom and it hasn't come. So in verse 13, he says, beware lest you say we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He's saying, with everything you said, beware lest you think you're too wise because it's going to take God working in the heart. 
Is that a true statement? I never get up here to preach without having some time, hopefully Sunday morning or Saturday afternoon, praying, God, take your word and work in hearts. Because it's not an eloquent presentation that changes people's lives. It's not an entertaining sermon that teaches people's lives. It's not yelling and screaming so you can't fall asleep. That changes people's lives. It's when God takes the truth, drives it home in the heart, and the Spirit of God changes lives and it makes all the difference. And so whether I preach a good sermon or not, and however you want to define that, it's only good if the Spirit of God is working in your heart. And it's not good because of me. It's good because God is good. And Elihu's headed there. He's not even saying, look at me, I'm this young man with a great message. He's saying, we got to let God work in hearts. And then verses 15 through 22, he's saying, I must speak. Look at verse 15. They are dismayed, they answer no more. They have not a word to say. What shall I wait? And shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. And as he's listening to all of these things, Elihu keeps waiting for God's wisdom to come to Job and he hasn't heard it yet. And so in his very spirit, in the depths of his spirit, and again, I believe as we look at the rest of this passage, as the spirit of God works in his spirit, he said, I was constrained. And that idea of constraint is being under so much pressure, you're about to explode. It's like, I have got to say something because God's wisdom needs to be heard and it hasn't been heard yet. Are you struggling through something and you just don't know what to do next? God's speaking and we need to hear him. You need to hear God's wisdom on things. And that's where Elihu is as he goes through this and says, I must speak for that reason. So we get to chapter 33, and he addresses Job directly. He says in verse 1 of chapter 33, But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. You know the interesting thing about that? And I had to look it up because I didn't believe the commentary who wrote it. It's the first time one of these people talking to Job actually referred to Job by name. Eliphaz was eloquent, but in order not to offend Job too much. He kept saying, it's the way of a man too, but he doesn't address Job. Bildad's the same, and Zophar's the same, but as Elihu gets here, he says, Job, I'm concerned about you. He's going to say that at the end of this chapter. I believe that Elihu, though a young man, had a heart for Job. He said, Job, I want to see you justified. Now, not justified like Job was thinking. Job's thinking justified. Everybody say, you were right, we were wrong. Sorry about that, Job. Justified from the fact of Elihu looks and says, I want you to have a right relationship with God, and you're slipping. You're slipping from where you were. And so he's looking and says, Job, listen to my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So he looks at him, and he kind of finishes it off by saying, here's why I should be able to speak to you, Job, because the same Spirit who made me made you. And that spirit has been stirring my spirit over your needs. And so he gets there and then gets into verse 5 and says, Answer me if you can. Does Job ever, in the next four chapters, answer Elihu? He answered Eliphaz. He answered Bildad. He answered Zophar. He will never answer Elihu. And the reason, I believe, is God begins working in Job's heart. And whereas when his other friends were accusing him of things that he was not guilty of, when Elihu begins to speak, he hits it home in Job's heart. And Job was a blameless man. 
Job was not a perfect man, but he was a blameless man. He did fear God. And as the truth of what Elihu says hits Job's heart, it's preparing him for God to step in and speak to him directly. I look at that and I think, there's kind of two sides to that coin. How many of you would like God to speak to you directly this afternoon about an issue you're having in your life where you're not walking right now? I just speak to you, but he's going to come and he's going to say, Russ, I know you think you're doing all right. Can I tell you how bad you're doing? Now, how many of us like to have that conversation with anybody? But when somebody else comes up and says that my my self-defense goes up, just like Job's, and I start defending myself internally, but when God comes up and says, you've got a problem and you need to fix it, is it worth putting your defenses up? God knows. He knows us at the very depths of our being. And so as he starts working through this, He says, answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Elihu is looking and he's saying, you know what? I'm not going to pressure you to make a decision. I'm just going to give you the truth. And again, I know there's different philosophies on that. But when I preach, I very rarely have an altar call. Say, why not? I love altar calls. There's nothing wrong with coming to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with talking to the Lord. But you know what? When I look at this, say, I don't want my pressure to bring somebody forward. I've seen more non-genuine, let's put them that way, false decisions made at an altar because somebody pressured folks to come forward. I've been at camp and I've seen speakers say, all right, if you love the Lord, raise your hand. If you love the Lord, come forward and confess whatever you need to confess at the altar. And they feel good because then they write home and say, 400 kids were at the altar. And I'm sitting there saying, what am I supposed to say? I hate the Lord, but God didn't really work in my heart tonight. But when God works in the heart, he doesn't need me. When the spirit of God takes the truth and drives it home in a heart, I don't need to close the deal. And I struggled with that as a young pastor. I still struggle with it sometimes and have to stand back and say, God, this is your work, not mine. These are your people, not mine. And I can have them raising hands and running down the altar, and maybe in tears if I get really good about it, but if you're not ultimately working in those hearts, it's worthless. And Elihu's looking and he's saying, you know what? It's God that's got to do that work. It's God that's, so I'm not going to put a lot of pressure on you. And then he lets him know, number, one, number two, Job, I hear you. Surely, verse 8, you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. In a very short, succinct way, Elihu has just said, Job, I heard what you said. Basically, you've said, Job, that you're a victim of an unjustifiable affliction from God. Now, let that mull around in your head for a minute. Are we ever victims of unjustifiable circumstances from God? Again, if Job is right and God has dealt poorly with him, then God's no longer God because God doesn't do that. And so Job needs to be brought to the point of saying, okay, if I'm feeling afflicted and it's not because of my sin, God must be at work on something else. And God is going to teach Job. Can you? I think about that at the beginning of the book. Job is blameless. He fears God, he runs from evil, and yet God had something to teach him. And then I get on my knees and say, God, what about me? I don't know, I can say I'm as blameless as Job was. I I want to fear you the way I ought to, but if you had to teach Job something, what do you have to teach me? 
And then I pray from the depths of my heart, God, help me to learn quickly. Because God will bring things into our lives to bring us where we need to be. He's doing that with Job. He's, by his grace, bringing Elihu into his life to say, Job, it's not what you did before. It's how you handled things after that are bringing you into trouble. It's your attitude. It's your outlook on how God works. It's your sense of justice that you deserve better. Now, most of us don't look at our friends and say, I deserve better than I get. But in the bottom of our minds, in the back of our minds, don't we think that at times? I'm a nice guy. I should have more money than I have. I should have a better house. I should have no problems with my family. I should have better health than I have. And you look at all those things, and again, are all those things promised by God unconditionally if you do things for him? No. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Was he just a wicked man? No, God had a reason for that in his life. And so he's trying to, as Elihu looks at Job, teach Job the the lesson in verses 12 through 14. He says, number one, verse 12, and I love his forwardness and straightforwardness here. Behold, in this you are not right. Again, put yourself in Job's shoes. Job's waiting for somebody to encourage him. Elihu comes and says, I'm going to give it to you straight. I'm going to give it to you the way God sees it. And I'm thinking as Job first hears that, he's thinking, finally, somebody's going to justify me. And Elihu looks at Job in chapter 33 and verse 12 and says, Job, you are not right. When somebody says that to you, what does it do to your spirit? And I wonder where Job is. And it's, it's, maybe that's why it takes three or four chapters before Job ever encounters God and gets to really let it work through all that because none of us like to be told we're not right. Even when we know we're not right, we don't like to be told that. But here Elihu is telling him, Job, not only are you not right, but here's where I'm going with all this. God is sovereign. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. God is in control. God can do whatever he wants with your life. And if you look at that and don't like the fact that that's there, well, hang on, because God's going to explain that to Job at the end of the book. And if you need more explanation, go ahead and turn over to Romans chapters 9 and 10, where God basically says, you're clay and I'm the potter, and guess what? The potter does whatever he wants with the clay. But somewhere in the bottom of our hearts, don't we grate with that if we're not careful with our relationship with God? God, I only get one life. If you're going to use me as an example of suffering, that kind of stinks. I want to have a good life. I want to have a wonderful life. I want everything to go well and smooth. I want my family to always be around me. I want everybody to be healthy and everybody to love the Lord. And isn't that what Job wanted? You look at Job chapter 1. His family's all around him. He's making sacrifices for his kids in case they didn't, so God will forgive their sins. And yet God did what? He allowed Satan to take it all to try Job's faith, to teach Job things about where his faith really was with him. And so he says, Behold, Job, you're not right. God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. And this is important. He looks at Job and said, Job, God does speak. Now, he may not have opened court and brought you up into the box to give your testimony, but God speaks. And he's going to go through some interesting things that could sidetrack us, and I don't want to get sidetracked this morning. We could talk about it more in the future. But number one, he says, he speaks to your dreams. You've got to be careful with this. There's a lot of wacky theology that comes from our dreams because we had a taco the night before, okay? But God has spoken through dreams in the past. He has. He spoke to 
Pharaoh in a dream. He spoke to Jacob in a dream. Even New Testament time, he spoke to Peter in a trance. It was basically a dream. He spoke to Joseph a couple of times in a dream. You remember the Christmas story? Joseph, take Mary as your wife. It was in a dream. I look at Joseph, and I always think, man, that guy got shortchanged. What did Mary get? An angel walks up and talks to her. You're blessed, are you? Joseph gets a dream. And then Jesus' life is in danger, and he needs to go to, to Egypt. And the angel doesn't show up again. He gets another dream, but God was speaking. And I thought, after I thought he got shortchanged, I kind of kicked myself and said, boy, I wish God would speak to me like that. God, God was intervening in his life. God was sharing truths with people at times they didn't need it. And the important thing about that as we look at it is, is God was speaking. And according to Elihu, he's saying often he speaks to rebuke us. He gives you nightmares to terrify you. What was he doing with Pharaoh? Was he giving Pharaoh sweet dreams? No, he wanted to terrify him into obeying the Almighty God when Pharaoh didn't want to. And in Job's case, he's looking and saying, God wants to get you back on track. He wants to keep your soul from the pit, from your life from perishing by the sword. Job, he wants to keep you from getting to exactly where you've gotten. When he says he wants to keep your soul from the pit, it literally means, Job, he's trying to keep you from the grave. Where did Job want to go? Just take me home. I've had enough. And basically, Elihu's saying, that's God's business. And God works in order to keep you from being in that place. Also, he works through suffering as we look at verses 19 and following. Man is rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. And if you feel like that, pain in your bed, strife in your bones, he goes on and he says, So that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. So you've got bones you didn't know you had because they're sticking out because you've lost so much weight. And Job's going through all of this. And then he says here, his soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. He looked at Job and basically said, everything you're complaining about, God does that to bring a man back to himself. How do we know that that's what he's talking about? Because in verses 23 through 27, he's going to underline the fact that God is merciful. Does Job seem like the book to study to find out God is merciful up through chapter 33? Doesn't feel very merciful to me. I read Job chapter 1 and I think, well, I'd like to be like Job, but God, don't bring my name up. Because look what happened to the poor guy. But God's working. And by the end of the book, we ought to be able to say, God, if that's what it takes to bring me closer to you and closer to Christ, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. If this is what it takes to draw me where I need to be with you. And he says in verse 23... If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him. Saying, if somebody goes and mediates for you, and God's merciful to you, and I think in some ways, without, again, we talked about Peter saying that at times the prophets prophesied without knowing they were prophesying. What does this verse sound like? Let's read the whole section here. It says here, and if be merciful to him, and he says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become flesh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. What does that sound like to you? I'm looking at that and that sounds like salvation. And I don't have an angel for me. Who's my mediator? There's one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. And I look at all this and say, God is merciful. And so as we get to the end of this passage, 
Job may be questioning, is God really merciful? Look what happened in my life. And so Elihu finishes this section in this section only, but he says, He has redeemed my soul from going down in the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job, listen to me, be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. Look at that. He's looking at him and saying, God does this. And we ought to be thankful that God's a patient God because what did he tell Job? He does it over and over and over again to bring you to where you need to be with God. Wouldn't it be a shame if we had one chance to get it right and if we blew it, that was it, done? But God's a merciful God. And even as Job is going through all these difficulties, even as his eyes begin to be open to what his real problems are, Elihu's trying to remind him, Job, what I want you to do is be justified, to be right with God again. Whether you get anything back or not, I want you to be right with God again and, and to be able to see that God's at work in your life. And then Elihu says at the end of this, verses 31 through 33, pay attention. Pay attention listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have any words, speak for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. Elihu is looking out and saying, Job, You've been asking for help. Listen. You may not hear what you wanted to hear, but listen. You may not be where you want to be right now, but listen. Because God speaks. Application to some of that is I thought about that in us this morning. You know, God's still speaking to us today. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The writer of Hebrews says, God's speaking. He speaks to you, and you, and you, and me, through Jesus Christ. And you know, one of the ways he speaks, every time we celebrate the Lord's table. And he intended it to be that way. Paul explains it this way. For I delivered from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. We need to understand a little bit deeper this morning as we go into the Lord's table. What does it mean, do this in remembrance of me? He doesn't want them just to have a fond memory of this is what Jesus did. He wants it to change their lives. Look further. He says, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Job's problem was that he felt like God owed him something. God owed him something better than he had experienced. You know, God owes you and I something. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God's eternal life. God owes you eternal punishment in hell. Do you want your just desserts today? If God gave us what we deserved... We'd all be headed to an eternity in hell. But God is merciful. And he goes on to say in Romans the fact that no matter how good you feel you are, you know, don't get like Job. I'm not, I'm a good person. Paul says there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Next time you look at somebody and say, I hope I'm good enough to get to heaven, quote him Romans chapter 3 if you have the nerve. 
There's none good. We're all worthless. None of us deserve anything but an eternity in hell. And it says in Romans 3.23, in case we missed it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of you have memorized Romans 3.23? If you haven't done it, go back and memorize the next two verses because there's where the hope is. Romans to beginning in 3.24, and the reason we're about to celebrate the Lord's table, we are justified by grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word propitiation is an interesting word. Most of us have trouble pronouncing it. But Paul looks and he says, we're sinners, we're headed for hell, but God in his grace is doing something else for us. He's given us a propitiation. He's given us the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus came, his body was broken, his blood was shed so that God's wrath, which is what propitiation means, God's wrath is satisfied. He's no longer looking at you and saying, you deserve eternity in hell. He's looking at you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and said, because of my son, that's been lifted. That's grace. And God wants us, every time we go to this table, to remember his grace, to remember his mercy, to remember his love. And the fact of the matter is, we're not all the children of God, even though he did that. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, especially verse 9, says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus said you have to believe on me. You have to put your faith and trust in that work and that work alone to make you right before God. You need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that he has raised him from the dead. And there's two questions to ask ourselves as we go to the Lord's table this morning. Number one, have I come to the Savior for forgiveness of sin and restoration of my relationship with God? And I put it that way for a very specific reason. Too many people walk an aisle, raise a hand, pray a prayer because they want a fire escape ticket from hell. And what Jesus Christ and what God said he did through Jesus Christ was give us a mode to forgive our sins and restore our relationship. Read Job again. Job may be distraught. Job misses his family that he lost. Job misses his riches and his power and his prestige. But most of all, Job misses the face of God. He said, where are you? Where are you? Jesus Christ died so we never have to cry. Where are you? Second question. He said, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... Are you living for the one who died for you? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 puts it this way. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Paul said it this way elsewhere. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And he goes on in 2 Corinthians to say, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Who are you living for today? Why do Christians go back to remember what Jesus Christ did? You look at it in the context of where we read it from 1 Corinthians, it's because the Corinthians were living for themselves. They were Christians, they claimed to be Christians, they went to church, they had all the externals working, but they were living for themselves, and Paul said, quit living for yourself and start living for Christ. That's how you know you're saved. That's how you know it's working. And this is an opportunity every time we come to this table, we have personal time of prayer, and you know what that's for? It's not so I can get down off the platform and get behind. It's so that we have time to personally reflect. Say, God, do I know Jesus Christ as Savior? If not, today's the day you need to put your faith and trust in him. But secondly, am I living like it? Does something need to change? Don't wait till God has to bring a Job experience into your life to change it for you. Come to this place and say, God, change me where I need to be in order to live like Jesus Christ who died for me. So as we get to the Lord's table this morning... Take time to reflect. Ask yourself, do I know the Lord as Savior? 
And if so, am I living like it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Elihu. We thank you for the way that you worked in his spirit. We thank you for the way that you're going to use him to prepare Job for his encounter with you. God, I pray that you might use him to prepare us for our encounter with you this morning as we remember the Lord's table. Lord, help us to examine ourselves. Help us to remember the price that was paid. And Lord, help us to be what we've been saved to be in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.